0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. This week's episode is pretty special because we're talking about how service animals not only improve well being, but sometimes they save our lives by the love, kindness, compassion, and attentiveness they give us. One thing that came up in the episode that I haven't really spoken about is the loss of my support, my family, my beloved companion, my best friend, my joy and my breath for 18 years, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm not really ready to talk a whole bunch about him or the loss, but I do want to acknowledge that the love we share with other animals can open us up to connecting with each other. And that is the focus of this week's episode. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jennifervertolin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. All right, this week's guest is Dr. John Tyler Benfett. He's an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. His research looks at understanding the benefits of canine-assisted intervention using certified therapy dogs with young children, young adults, and, well, also the rest of us. He's the founder of Bark, building academic retention through canines and the director of the Center for Mindful Engagement. Let's get to it. Um, Welcome to the show. I am really excited to talk with you. You know, we connected through uh, Twitter and I'm glad we did because the work you're doing is really incredibly important and it speaks to how Nurturing our connection with other species can heal and move us towards well-being and a better place. Um, that's one aspect of what you do, and another is fostering kindness in the learning space. And this is all of this is actually just, uh, you know, uh, listeners, the tip of the iceberg. And I hope that we can get to all of it. So, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm I'm happy to always talk about kindness and canines.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And we're going to talk a lot about canines and a lot about kindness. And before we start, something I realized uh, that intrigues people and maybe just intrigues me is how people end up doing the things that they do. How did you become interested in, in this area of work? And is it connected at all to your own life experience?
1: Yeah. You know, I have a really unusual trajectory. I started at the ripe age of 48 if you can imagine. So I did a PhD as a young person, um, sort of supported a spouse's uh, high profile career. And so uh, took a back seat and then found, found myself kind of needing to dust off my PhD and find a job. And my mentor who guided me in my early days said, whatever you do, pursue joy. Pursue joy. You're, you know, She kind of said, you're well-trained as a researcher, but just pursue joy. And so I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so I work, I have two kind of uh, high level, I guess we'd call research streams. I look at uh, kindness in school, and then I look at uh, the effects of th- spending time with therapy dogs. But I don't have an anthrozoological background. I'm a psychologist by training. And so primarily, I work with children and adolescents, and then in you your kind of, the second- of your question was uh you know how is it anchored to my personal life sort of i am a huge uh animal advocate vegan forever and i uh, have a house full of rescue mutts and critters and so i try to do research at the university that aligns with just uh, my personal view of how we should interact and treat animals so uh doing this research allows me to do that
0: well, you know, this is going to be a spectacular conversation because um, I'm, I'm many of those same things, and I I did recently lose the last of my furry um, family members, That's which has talk. been hard. Um, yes. yeah. So you know, especially during the time that we're in, and 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 many people staying at home, and um, but you know, we could probably spend the entire time, and we might actually yeah. uh, talking about canine assisted therapy. But I'm I like to get give listeners sort of a background. And I'm curious, when did canine assisted therapy take shape and become like a formal structured therapeutic approach? Yeah.
1: Well, I can tell you it's uh, been under the umbrella of animal assisted interventions and it's housed sort of under the larger umbrella of human animal interaction. So people have been dabbling in this for a while, but we've really seen this sort of surge in empirical and applied interest. And I think, you know, organizations like Pet Partners International, for example, that has, um, you know, thousands of dog handler teams that really kind of are out in communities, certainly in the states. Uh, But we're seeing across the globe people interested, and certainly in, in the Bark Office at UBC Okanagan, we're hearing, we hear from people all over the world all the time wanting to do Research or to investigate this topic, um, they're hungry to find out about the science of spending time with therapy dogs. So uh, that's a big part part of the work that I do. Um, so, but I would say, you know, I'll, I kind of tell, and listeners might be interested in this. Um, I arrived to the university from up in Canada, from Southern California, and I I was a volunteer. Every Saturday, we'd go. This my dog Francis, a therapy dog. We'd go to a, a residential treatment facility for kids, adolescents with traumatic and acquired brain injury. And so we were just like a regular Joe Schmo volunteer. We'd go and it was super gratifying. And I took this faculty position, brought that dog up with me, and I'd go from my building across campus to get coffee every day. And it was always Jennifer, the same choreography. The kids on campus would, I'd be besieged by students. They would largely ignore me, and then they just lose themselves and interact with the dog, and then they'd look up with these tear-filled eyes and they'd say, you know, as much as I miss my parents, I miss my dog more. And it was in that moment that I realized, OK, we need to provide access to nature, access to animals. And, you know, really, in as I dug into this literature, people describe being a university student as kind of like uh, living in an old folks home, like a stereotypical old folks home. It's crowded, the food is bad, and there's no touch. And so, you know, I thought, okay, let's change the landscape here. And so in 2012, I started this program called Bark, building academic retention through canines. And so that was the, my launching, diving into the deep to figure out the science of uh, therapy dogs
0: that's, you know, that's really, it's, it's so a lot came up for me. I have a, a very close friend. Um, her name's Seneca Nunn. She also, uh, uh, runs an amazing pet sitting, um, business in Tucson, but she, uh, has a few therapy animals. There's a horse or, or a small, she's going to kill me, a small pony. I can't remember. Um, I know there's a small pony or horse and then one or both one of her dogs um uh jet is um uh, certified and they go to a uh, something called the lapland center it's for kids an after school like thing once a week um for kids for under from underrepresented backgrounds and they interact with the animals and so she's a volunteer right that that does what you were saying you started to do and i can say that even informally when i lost my uh one of my fur babies, uh, peanut button sister, I was having a really tough time and and she just said, hey, you know, Gretel, she has a, a, a miniature pony or horse and and she has Cushing's disease. So the fur gets really, really thick yeah. and needs to be shaved, especially in Tucson. And she said, you know, Gretel needs to be shaved. Do you think you could come help with that? Or I have yeah. to wash the horses. Um, so it's not just dogs, right? It can be other animals yeah. that are therapy. And, and I tell you, I think- I got more out of the shaving of Gretel than Gretel did because I'd never shaved uh, before and I wasn't very good at it. And she was very tolerant.
1: Uh, (laughs) Well, I love that, you know, undergirding all of that. I love that your friend read the room and said, saw what you needed before you realized what you needed. Right. (laughs) And I always describe it as the animals do work that humans struggle oftentimes to do right? The, the, the animals do the heavy lifting and scientists like me, you know, we can't take all the credit here. It's the animals that are doing the heavy lifting and they're the ones who are bridging and connecting with uh, people, with clients. And so we really always have to, you know, keep their welfare at the forefront and uh, we really like honor the, the good work that they do. But, you know, the, like your friend in the community, The handlers of these animals, whether they're horses or dogs or whatever they are, um, are the backbone of all the science and of all the community programming. And we really are hats off to them for all the work they do.
0: Well, right. And so and so what goes, you know, I think that people may not realize everything that goes into um, becoming a handler and also what the animals themselves you know, go through in terms of training? Can you, um, you know, what training do, let's focus on on dogs since you have Bark, which is building academic retention through canines. Uh, and I want to uh, sort of touch on that uh, in a different way. But first, you know, what, what training do the dogs go through to become certified and what makes a good therapy canine?
1: If this is a question we ask ourselves all the time. We do um, what we call new dog intake. We have 60 dogs in the in the program who work on a regular basis and um, all information for listeners can be found on the Bark website, barkubc.ca. And uh, we have a, a whole proto- protocol that we outline and whatnot. But what's really interesting is, and this might resonate with listeners, is that we're not looking for the overly trained robotic dog who's void of personality because our clients, whether they're police officers or whether they're students on campus or, you know, geriatric you know, folks in a a facility, they want personality. So we don't want to train the personality out of these dogs. We do need, you know, baseline kind of uh, uh, compliant behavior. So what's really curious though, is I have learned over the years and have written a book about this. um, We do a holistic assessment model. And so every person on my team, about 30 of us, we vote on every handler and every dog. And sometimes... The dogs will pass and the handler will not pass. And so the team is not accepted into the program. And so we go through this whole uh, uh, evaluation process and then an internship where we give guidance. But, um, you know, we're looking for dogs who actually want to work. And it it can't just be the handler who wants to do this out in the community. The dog, it sounds a bit oprah but does the dog want to meet new people? And, and we look at things like attachment to their, their owner or handler and are they overly insecurely attached and how do they approach new novel stimuli and uh, what's their basic baseline behavior like? Are they good with a variety of different individuals at different ethnic garb and different skin tones? And we look at all that because we take a really sort of serious approach to safety because um, one safety incident could shut us down. So we're really, really careful and mindful of that. And the other thing that's kind of curious, and listeners might find this interesting, is that The dogs have to be super human centric, really curious to meet new people, but they can't be curious about other dogs. We're we're not a dog socialization program and we need the dogs to be indifferent to other dogs. And that's a really hard one to find. So super human focused, but indifferent to other dogs. They can't be working at a station because we do group up to 20 dogs at a time working in a space. You can't have a dog kind of paying attention to a human, but really wanting to sniff somebody's butt across the room, right? <laughs> right. So... We're really careful about that. But 10 years later, uh, we really have it down to a science. And uh, the two times that I listened, didn't listen to the team who voted right. on not accepting. And I thought, no, there's potential here. And we, I should override this. It backfired on us. So I now, in you know my ripe old age and wisdom, I listen to the whole team. Everybody gets to vote it. Every handler and every dog. Right. And that serves us well.
0: Well, and I, I love that holistic approach and that both... Um, the handler and the dog have to be a good fit for what you're trying to do. And you did write a book and I can put a link to it on the show notes um, for listeners, as well as the website for bark and all of the amazing things you. that you're doing. Yep. Um, we'll make sure that people know where to find you, find the program and and find information about it. So I'm curious though, since I want to think about the dogs for a second, because I, I really appreciated how you said you want to make sure that it's also a good experience for the for the dogs that you're paying attention to how they're feeling and how they're experiencing. Do you think that of the dogs that are in the program that that met that criteria of being very human centered and um, and less dog focused, other dog focused? Do, do you think they have experienced any benefits? I know it's hard for us to think about what they might be feeling or experiencing, but. You know, is there a way that you have seen that, that actually the dogs themselves benefit from participating in therapy?
1: That's a great question. I love that sort of perspective there. I do know on the flip side, we're really mindful of uh, any distress or stress experienced by the dogs. We have somebody in the lab always monitoring just canine welfare. So we always have that. It is the handler's responsibility primarily to monitor their dogs, but we always have an outside view to just look at different indicators of stress or ill being. Um, And then, you know, curiously enough, um, and your listeners are animal people, so they'll get this, but Pre-bowel movement behavior and post-bowel movement behavior can be markedly different. And so we really you know, emphasize dogs are exercised and toileted prior to coming in. And then if they don't settle in the lab during a protocol, they're taken outside to be toileted. And if they don't settle again, then they're done. Just like you and I have bad days, and we 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 get our gym bag ready and go to the gym and walk in and say, Yeah, I'm not doing this today. The dogs can have a day like that too. And we really are respectful of that. And there's no pressure to participate. But we're really mindful of like the physiological sort of indicators of stress and then the biology of the dogs too, to make sure there's optimal conditions. But I do know after 10 years, we hear all the time that handlers will say they sleep. Afterwards, they all have a nap after a session because they've given so much. They they've paid so much attention to others. And I think that. Like same with humans, it's draining for us, right? It depletes our resources. So um, we're mindful we have a restriction of 90 minutes maximum. And if dogs are doing, new dogs are doing internships, they're restricted to 20-minute visits. So uh, we really build capacity over time. And um, so we're really, the canine welfare piece is a really big piece for us that we're we're not there to exploit dogs. We're not there to use dogs. We are collaborating with dogs and uh, really sort of, um, building on their talents so that's kind of the approach we take
0: well I, i think um it's i think it's so important for listeners to hear that because sometimes we don't get that inside look into the the thinking behind the way a program is structured and the care that's being taken And even maybe for people to realize it's incredibly important to be attuned and attentive to the needs of the dog, not just not just the needs of the people that you are assisting. Right. But to them, because they are giving and and you're I love how you said, you know, that's often true for us. Sometimes if I've interacted with a lot of people, I need a nap. (laughs) (laughs) I just need a nap. I may not sleep, but I need to, you know.
1: You know, Um. I get that, you know, but the dogs are so intuitive and I think that's why they need to recharge is that they really they read the client. Like I'll give you an example. I have three dogs that I bring to campus rescue mutts who follow me super very strongly bonded to me. I don't I should use leashes, but I don't always use leashes, and they're always right behind me. So I go to get in the elevator and lo and behold, there's two dogs and I'm missing one. And I peek out of the elevator and the dog has stopped and there is a bunch of students studying, but she's gone to one student in particular. And I go and I say, um, I have to ask you, are you okay?" This dog has come to you and she's pretty intuitive and he bursts into tears. And so these dogs, I trust the dogs. They know and they can read and they they often we sort of describe it. They go where they're needed. They go to whom they're who needs them. So. I really, uh, I listen to the dogs as much as possible and uh, let them take the lead with clients. And uh, like I said earlier, they do the heavy lifting, but it's, uh, you know, the other side of this as a scientist, it's really, really rewarding work. It's, you know, I get, we have a lot of tears in the, in the lab and in the work that we do, but it's um, often, you know, from a source of joy or a source of comfort. And so as a scientist, I don't just work with data, but I work with you know, I'm covered in dog hair, and work with people who are really appreciative of the work we do. So it's very, there are young listeners out there who are young budding scientists. Uh, I just highly recommend this as a field of study and it seems to be a growing field. There'll be increased need and there are people want to connect with nature and they want to connect in our tech driven world where we are watching tiktoks and youtube videos of animals we need to be with animals we need to be shaving the horse down for the the summer heat and and get that you know applied experience because i think we have a a young people who often don't get afforded those opportunities
0: absolutely and i'm gonna tell a little story that happened um to me i was recently in iceland and um You know, I've been going through my own grief and losing my, um, basically my family member and after 18 years and um, some people out there listening might remember the podcast sensation, Senor Antonio Botones Gatos, who was a regular on the David Feldman show. And he passed away and, and I'd been really struggling. And I went to, when I was in Iceland, I was in this little town and I'm sitting there and I was, you know thinking about him and feeling really sad. And I, I was at a picnic table and this cat appears out of nowhere and comes up onto the picnic table and looks at me and I pet it. It had a collar and I'm like, oh, he's just nice. Okay. Friendly. And this has never happened to me in my whole life of, of all the animals and all the cats and dogs that I've met. It's happened with dogs, but never a cat. This cat, climbed up my chest and put, put its arms around my neck and hugged me.
1: <laughs> I love it. Like
0: it squeezed me. And yeah. I, so I hugged back and I, so we're just sitting there embraced. And I, my mind is going, I, I'm confused. I didn't know that cats hug and then it got down and it stayed a little while and I petted it some more. And then it hugged me again, and yeah. this time I burst into tears.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah,
0: and and then it vanished. Like yeah. it came, it hugged me twice, and then it vanished. And and so you know that just that moment of connection that was not forced; it was voluntary uh, by both of us. Yeah, I don't know. Why? But I maybe I do. Right. Maybe she just yeah. was one of those intuitive animals that was like, gosh, this poor human is yeah. just broken. I think I'm going to go give her a hug. Right. And, yeah. and so, you know, you mentioned that you bring you uh, d- several of your um, therapy animals to university with you and you told that very moving story about the student. And as a faculty member, I'm wondering, have you, has it ever happened with a faculty member?
1: Oh, yes. Um... Yes, it, it happens all the time. And our program that we run, our drop-in program that we do on Friday afternoons, is open to the community. So we have faculty, staff, students. We have community members, social workers who bring kids, foster kids will come, and all kinds of really cool kind of community connections. But, um, yeah, the kind of touching story about a faculty member is um, kind of a senior. And, you know, this high-powered, lot of political kind of uh, capital uh, faculty member came and um, unbeknownst to us, his son was in the room and they came to one of the sessions. And that night, I got a message saying um, the son had been struggling with some mental health, and they, he just simply wrote, um, "Dr. said, I want to thank you for you know what you've created on campus. Uh, we had our son back at dinner tonight, and this I you know just lovely." that, you know, the work we do. So we're recognized by faculty, I think as a resource for students, but also for faculty and staff will come and a little reticent to show the tears like the kids do the students do but um we see it you know we step right into emotion in the lab that's the one thing that animals teach us as we step into emotion we don't subscribe to sort of the western view that tears need to be shuffled out of the room and in the restroom and, and hidden away we just step right into the emotion and we acknowledge that and we uh we let the dogs do the work to to sort of help uh move through that emotion so yeah it's a really like i said earlier just really gratifying work
0: yeah well and i'd like to um you know, shift, if it's all right, to talk a little bit about the forward thinking and innovative research you've been doing. Would that be all right? Yes,
1: yes absolutely. Yeah. OK, absolutely. great.
0: So one aspect, you know, so I study social behavior and but one aspect of, of what you um, have done some research on is social and emotional learning and using. um or how canine assisted intervention or therapy can enhance social and emotional learning. So before we sort of talk about the details of that study, which was really fascinating, um, I think it would be helpful for listeners to know what do we mean when we say social and emotional learning? Like, what is that? Uh,
1: Yeah, this is another, just like we talk about the field of, um, you know, human-animal interaction sort of burgeoning and and lots of interest, social-emotional learning, which is really this field of study where we uh, look at our Individual interpersonal skills around managing our emotions, connecting with others, and our uh, intrapers- interpersonal skills where we really build community, able to perspective take and support other people other than ourselves, um, is a it really just this field of study that is um, um, recognized to really fuel academic learning it fuels interpersonal relationships and connections to others it builds community and it um contributes to leadership so we're seeing a lot of um interest in this and i thought as a scientist i thought well, I'm trained in these areas. Why don't I glue them together or have a marriage ceremony where we kind of bring them together? So we, the study you're referring to was published in the Journal of Research and Childhood Education, a recent publication with a graduate student, Nicole Harris. And we looked at a uh, building confidence through canines program. And this, oh gosh, I love this program where we had kids kind of from the inner city bust out to campus assigned a therapy dog. And we did all these really cool protocols where we would kind of do direct instruction with the kids. And then they had to practice with their therapy dog. And then once they got that down, they would take the dog out to campus and practice the skill with a larger audience so really quick illustration they would learn to introduce themselves so they would actually practice shaking paws with the therapy dogs establishing eye contact and then they would take their therapy dog out around the campus with the handler and then they would go and meet random students and they'd say these are little like six-year-olds too and they'd say excuse me for you're interrupting i know you're studying i'd like to introduce myself and my therapy dog you know and then they'd say things like Dr. Binford, he's avoiding eye contact. I think he's nervous, you know, or they'd say, Dr. Binford, his handshake lacks confidence. Well, like he needs to be in the program, you know, really funny stuff. And but it was a lovely way of kind of blending the social, emotional content with the dogs. And so that's kind of the innovative work I'm trying to do.
0: Oh, it was incredible. And we're going to we're going to dig into it a little bit um, deeper, um, because I think that we don't necessarily understand the consequences if we don't have growth in this area of social and emotional learning. Can you talk about that a little bit? What what happens if we don't develop? Well, it's
1: funny because in my the graduate course, I teach at the University of British Columbia on social emotional learning. I always ask students, I say, um, you know, they do a self-inventory of their own social emotional learning. But I ask them, I say, do you know people who are especially strong on social emotional learning? And then I flip it and say, do you know people who need some remedial work? And they all right away can <laughs> pull up people. And I think it, it, it renders a person under potential. So the social emotional development, and skills, the competencies, we call them, um, really help people flourish. And so if those are underdeveloped, then I think it restricts the individual, how they navigate, how they know themselves, and how they navigate through the world. So um, we see that on a regular basis. And the kids will actually you know, say things like, um, they'll say things, and it breaks my heart. They'll say things like, uh, I see everybody like clustered up together in groups. How do you make a friend? I don't know. how. I didn't get that memo. How do you do that? And the kid's 20. And so that um, I often have written about this, that the university or college context is the last kind of training ground around social emotional learning, because once they get out in the workforce, no employer is going to say, hey, little friend, I think we need to work on these remedial skills. Right. Right. I think so. I need
0: to join your program. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get the memo. I mean, I, you know, I'm better now, right? Yeah. But but I did not. I was one of those kids and um, I didn't, I didn't understand how it all worked. And so when I think of other social species that need to develop these skills and integrate a pro-social perspective, um, yeah. I imagine that it, it occurs First in their fam- familial relationships and then later in their interactions with others um, outside of the family. Um, and so I'm wondering if the familial interactions lay the groundwork so that you can go out more confidently outside of that space. Yeah. Is, is that a, like am I, I mean, because I don't know this field. Right. Yeah. So that's just yeah. my intuition. But I don't know um, if yeah. you could talk about that.
1: Well, I think like many sort of situation you know some kids are weaned too quickly and uh you know and there's some family structures that are not stable and so they look to other sort of institutions or or mentors to lead that so it did not we don't want to make the assumption they're all getting it at home i think that's increasingly in our busy society that's not the case but i want to return to a point you raised that this idea and i think listeners might be curious about this that could it be that people who are maybe a little bit awkward socially and emotionally have really strong connections with the animals, but not with people per se, right? And that and I think I'm I'm on the same page as you here, that we maybe seek the comfort and company of these animals and this alignment and kinship that we find really gratifying. And so I see that and I think everybody who's listening has met people who are you know wonderful with animals, but you know, need some polishing with some people, right?
0: (laughs) Yes. I'm nodding as listeners cannot see me nodding. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I think that was me. Even as a child, like, um, you know, I I gravitated towards other species. Um, and it first it was mice, then it was Guinea pigs, then it was, you know, anything that was non-human animal. And, and I think that it's very interesting to have seen how, I mean that was very fruitful, right? It it drove me into a certain path, and it's why I yeah. do what I do today. But then I I sort of made full circle, and now I think about human animal interact human and non human interactions uh, and how we can learn from other animals, and so one of the things that i i think was so important about what you said is that you know anim, other animals so in this case the, the dogs canines that we're talking about they know they know who needs something and i think that when you watch and when you pay attention to other species you become more attuned socially and emotionally yes even yes. with other humans
1: yeah absolutely uh, absolutely well you know why this this research is really tough to do because you need the scientist has to be plugged into the animals and attuned to their whole world but also plugged into and interested in humans. And so understand the psychology of uh, that. So that's why this research is really tough. But I think undergirding all of it is perspective, taking and strong social emotional awareness, because that allows you to read the room, read the emotions in the room, and then identify what's needed. Right. So um, it's tough stuff to do, I would say.
0: I, I agree. And I, I mean, I think you navigate that really, really well. And it seems that, you know, part of that learning space is in the, the human school um, and so because you've you focus on child development and education and and uh, and were able to marry these these passions together were there things you were seeing problems or challenges um that you felt needed to be addressed that other than just kind of bringing together the two things that you're really passionate about were you seeing its application as a way to address or solve problems that you felt were happening for kids Um, and university students and anybody really.
1: Yeah. I, you know, the literature is really clear around the kindness, and this is what you're alluding to, is that um, I really see the need to provide information and science and structure for kids around being kind, because we know being kind, intentionally kind, purposely kind, leads to a whole host of mental health benefits. And so I think, um, you know, my kind of mission on this planet is uh, in some small way is to sort of advance our thinking around kindness. And so a lot of the writing that I do um, is on uh, helping kids figure out how to be kind and takes a lot of bravery and guts to be kind. So um, that's a lot of the work that I do. um, in schools. And, um, so I started out measuring kindness and developed a school kindness scale, um, was kind of trained in psychometrics early. And so then, uh, moved on from that, but I really am, you know, ultimately bringing it back to the dogs. I try to just live a very kind life. I, and I think animals are good teachers of kindness. And so I try to I'm always a bit of a sponge around that, um, but I try to live a kind life. And so I want um, to promote kindness as much as possible. Trying to do my three acts a week and all that kind of stuff
0: right well and so so this struck uh something a question for me that came up when i was listening to you talk i'm i'm wondering do you think that as much as the the their the canine therapy is helping on the social and emotional learning is kindness part of that learning
1: I, you know, I haven't actually cross-pollinated the two, the canines with the kindness work yet. Um, I haven't done that, and that might be a future sort of applied intervention study down the road. But uh, my two research fields are quite distinct. One's in schools and the other's here on campus with the dogs. So I haven't really figured out a way, and listeners can always send me a message or something and say, you should try this, or I'd be really curious to hear about that. But I haven't quite figured out, but... Um, yeah. So that's kind of my, my, I operate in two distinct kind of brain contexts. I switch gears when I do studies on these things.
0: Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe something will come of it. Um, uh, I was interested when I read your paper on, on the idea that physical contact actually is a really key component. And, you know, a lot of us during the past year and a half maybe have been isolated. We haven't had hugs. I mean, you know, getting a hug from a cat was like, on multiple levels, right? Not just, you know, cat, but, but just being physically touched by another. And so, um, you know, you had mentioned in the paper that part of the sort of instruction that was really important was for students to touch, uh, to have physical contact with, with the dog, to touch it, to receive affection or give affection. Um, and how does that influence the outcome of, of the work that you're, you were doing?
1: Yeah, this is a paper recently published in Anthrozoes and the co-authors are Zachary Draper and Freya Green. And I want to acknowledge that sort of... uh Intellectual contribution there. Um, so, uh, yes, we knew, Jennifer, that spending time with therapy dogs was beneficial. Everybody is reporting this scientifically across studies. And with the exception, really, of uh, Patricia Pendry at Washington State University, who looked at physiological or biomarker indicators of, of well being, spending time with dogs and touch, there was really no study that had really systematically isolated touch. So, what we did is we randomly assigned 284 participants to one of three conditions. The first was they had to be uh, have hands-on contact with a the therapy dog for 20 minutes. The second condition was they were with a the therapy dog, but had no touch. And remember, you know, we're working in a scientific lab, so everything is measured, the distance between the dog and the students and the handler and all that kind of stuff. And then the third condition was they were just with a handler, no dog. And we wanted to parse out, well, how important is touch? And lo and behold, when we looked at a series of dependent variables outcome measures of well-being both positive such as flourishing and happiness and social connectedness and then we looked at the negative loneliness stress homesickness things like that the students who spent time hands-on with the dogs had the most significant outcomes across all the measures so it clearly the narrative was if you want to maximize the outcomes for yourself you need to have hands on contact with the dogs. And many of us animal people knew this intuitively, but it hadn't scientifically really been advanced. And so we articulated that and that paper has gotten a bit of traction.
0: Yeah. Well, and so this also brings up an interesting thing about science, which is, you know, people don't necessarily think of it as a creative process, but it is so creative and often it is that gut feeling, that intuitive hunch that you have, um, but that we can't stop there. Then we, we, you know, you have to be creative to design experiments like this to try to get at the thing that you're thinking. Is going on. And I think, was it, there's past research that shows cortisol levels go down, yes. right? As you are engaged physically, and right. you can measure uh, cortisol real time in saliva. Yes. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, what was great was because if you just, so there is a benefit though, right? Just to having a, a dog there, but there's an uh-huh. even better benefit, a more significant outcome if you're physically interacting with the animal.
1: Right. Purposely, intentionally, uh, through pet and scratching, uh, having direct physical contact. Yeah. And so I think the combination of both the physiological outcome research, and then our, uh, research is, um, you know, tells a narrative that if you get the opportunity, and I'm thinking about people, you know, who are listening who maybe don't have animals in their lives and have infrequent opportunities, like they're passing someone on the street and the dog reaches out to them who's being walked and they should stop and crouch down and they should do the ear kind of caressing. I'm showing this here as I know with a yeah. lot, but um, they should really take advantage of that because it actually, in many ways, is taking care of themselves.
0: Yeah. Well, and and also, um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of situations with wild animals where people approach and they're, or they're feeding or they're trying. And I think, you know, first don't do that, but I do think the emotional motivation to want to be close to other animals is a, is this, is what's driving that behavior, right? Um, this, this desire to connect and, and so, that struck me when I was reading your paper, like, Oh, you know, I wonder if, if that need and that desire to physically connect is what leads sometimes people to make you know, poor judgment calls when it comes to wild animals, you know, you you don't want to approach wild animals. And, and even sometimes with dogs, like if they reach out to you and you're good at reading, you know, dog behavior. Um, but then it's always where you don't put, you know, like, I mean, the way I was always sort of, um, thought about it was you put your hand under the dog, not over. Um, and, you know, um, and allow the dog to drive the degree of physical interaction that you have, you know, so, yeah. well, um, you're
1: really, you're really speaking about consent, right? Like in, you know, establishing consent, but I back it up too. And we've looked at this a little bit, this notion of, um, what we call, um, emotional contagion or, uh, emotional spillover where you never want to be exposed. You know, in uh, approaching an animal with a heightened stress yourself. So I would say even prior to starting the interaction with the lowered hand, I would say you step back and take a deep, mindful breath. Right. You just ground yourself and you just are mindful. You don't bring forward to that greeting any kind of negative dark cloud of emotion because that's not going to bode well but i love you know i work with street dogs a lot and they often get hit overhand by an overhead smack and so we always it could be head shy and so we always go low with an open palm low non-threatening and then let the dog come forward to give consent to say Yeah, I'll buy into this for a little bit. Right, right. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of choreography that goes on.
0: There is. And I think I love that you identified that as consent because I think that sometimes, um, and I don't know if you found this in your research, where you have to remind participants that come to that community space about consent, even though the dogs are there and they are therapy dogs, you know, that there is still um, this agreement. There has to be a agreement. And what you spoke about with coming with an agitation or some kind of, you know, energy level that, you know, other animals perceive this very, um, very deeply and they respond and react to it in, because they may not know that you're mad at, you know, your partner. They just know you're mad and that you could be mad at them. They don't know. There's no, you know, Um, I forget theory of mind. I mean, they have theory of mind, but they don't necessarily know your mind um, any more than, you know, theirs. And, and so I remember I used to volunteer for a big cat sanctuary. And at the time when I was volunteering, there were some individuals that still were going in with some young tigers. Um, And One day, one of the people she had had a bad day and decided to make herself feel better by going and playing with the three tigers and she got attacked by the three tigers.
1: It sounds all very Tiger King.
0: Well, it wasn't. That wasn't where it was. But but, um, you know. It going, she went in with that agitation and looking for them to make her feel better. And they reacted very differently to her in that moment than they had in other moments. And, you know, I think that um, the respect and the consent that that needs to happen for all people and animals, you know, uh, even if you're agitated and you try to hug somebody, they may not want you to hug them. Right. Because they can feel that. Um, And
1: I, I think that's really this idea of being perceptive. But I think at the forefront, the human needs to be introspective and realize like what what am i gifting or bringing forward to this interaction right and doing a check on that and like the example of the woman with the tigers we do often seek the comfort of animals when we're in a depleted is sort of a, a depleted state yeah right and so you know we're not always animals are not there just to you know serve our needs or to to just uh, make us feel better they have their own purpose and agenda and, and journey and so we have to be careful of that that they all align
0: Right. Yes. Yes. And you said, t- step back and take a deep breath and be mindful about what you're bringing. And of course, that is going to bring me to the fact that you are also the director of the Center for Mindful Engagement. Yes. And I was very intrigued by this. Can you um, share a bit about what the center is and, and you know, what it what you do? Yeah.
1: Now, this is a new appointment here at the University of British Columbia. And I am the director, as you said, of the Center for Mindful Engagement and And its purpose is really to bring awareness of the role of mindfulness uh, vis-a-vis well-being and that uh, the pursuit of mindfulness from an empirical standpoint, for example, doing research on the role of mindfulness um, uh, is sort of critical to what we do. So I cross-pollinate and bring different researchers together to look at that. But on a very applied level, uh, mindfulness plays a role Um, just in my daily practice and interactions, I'm really mindful of breath. I have my students practice deep breaths uh, before we meet clients or, or do anything. And I'm just always aware of, um, breath and energy. And it sounds a bit oprified. I realize that for some listeners, it'll be a bit out there for them, but, um, I encourage folks to read up on mindfulness and read up on breath and the role it plays in sort of, um, forecasting and, uh, maybe lubricating our interactions with others.
0: Yes, I, I would agree. And I think that I have had to, Be much more mindful, you know, because what happens if you're not, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but my observation is that when you're not, there are consequences. And those consequences may not happen immediately, right? But it's like a a buildup, almost like tartar (laughs) on your, on your, on yourself and your being. And, and then you might experience physical challenges. You might experience more arguments or negative interactions. And if you're not introspective, you're going to think that it's all outside happening to you and not thinking about what you are bringing to the situation. So yes. I love that you even do this with your graduate students and in the lab, and that it it extends to every aspect of your life, your work and 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 other. And so what a gift too, that your mentor told you to pursue your joy.
1: Oh, I am so grateful to this day of um, sort of having that guidance and wisdom. And then that I had the confidence to sort of not really know where I was headed, but that that was the direction I wanted to head. And I really encourage folks who are listening who are maybe, you know, exploring different options. And COVID has given us a time for reflection and maybe a time to recalibrate and point in a different direction. And if um, work with animals is maybe on the horizon for them, I encourage them to really uh, pursue something that is really respectful and mindful of the role of the animal and the contributions that they make. And then also of the uh, role of the humans as they kind of navigate their ways with animals.
0: Yeah. Well, and I know you're very busy. And so I'm not going to, I could talk to you the entire day. Um, but you know, you've, you've connected all of these different elements of who you are with the work that you do. And. You know, I do have a question I like to ask all of my guests because the show is about connection, right? It's, it's how we connect with each other, how we connect with other species and how we connect with nature. And so I'm wondering, you know, what is your, do you have a special way or is everything about what you do your way of connecting with nature and other animals?
1: Yeah, I'm really mindful of um, my dose intervention. This will sound too scientific, but I'm sort of really mindful of my exposure. Like, how much nature am I actually getting? I, I kind of—I don't know about you, but I sort of see nature as medication, and so I'm really mindful of like, oh, I haven't—I've been inside all day, or I—you I, know—I haven't had felt the sun or I'm really mindful of that. So my connection to nature is one where I kind of quantify it to say, am I getting a sufficient dose of it? Right. Right. And, And I also am really, um, I stop and, you know, circling back to that mindfulness where I just um, appreciate, take the deep breath in and say, oh, my gosh, I'm so lucky to be here. I'm so lucky to be surrounded by these crazy animals who want to, you know, interact with me or just in nature or whatever it is. But I think it's being mindful and present and being grateful of um, the sort of rich bounty we have around us uh, in terms of nature, whether it's through animals or or physical nature, uh, you know, geography. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be present that way, to be present in the moment and really uh, kind of applaud the good things that um, the animal gives that come my way uh, through interactions.
0: I love that. And, you know, it it is like a vitamin, right? I mean, we do know empirically that just to go back to the research, because we've got two scientists here that that spending time even walking outside um, reduces stress level, uh, reduces your chances of heart attack, stroke, um, you know, it it improves your mood, um, you know. Even just watching fish in a fish tank lowers yeah. your br- blood pressure. Yeah. Right? And and so I, you know, I I've never thought about it but of dosing, but I think I I'm going to play around with that. Like how much how much nature did I get today? Exactly. We all, I mean, right? I quantify how much water I had today. Right. Yes. I track if, my water.
1: I mean, people will talk about how much television they watch and they, and I'm like, well, how much nature did you get exposed to today? Right? Yeah,
0: we need, so we need my, a, Yeah, yeah. I think we need an app for that because there's an app that tells you how much time you spent on your phone.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's true. Well, I think undergirding all of this is that oftentimes technology will will hamper or kind of impede our interactions and take us away from being mindful. I see, you know, a lot of TikTokers and stuff outside and doing stuff, so, but I'm like, oh, just enjoy that time. Enjoy right. it. Don't just always record it, you know. Right. So yeah. No. I'm, old I'm old school that way.
0: <laughs> no, I'm with you. I am also, I go for daily walks and um, I sometimes walk the same route. And so then I get to know, oh, hey, squirrel, you're still yeah. <laughs> you still, you know, and and I've, I've had arguments with the, a few of the squirrels, like stop sitting in the road. And, you know, and then I always am brokenhearted when I'm like, I told you, and they're, they're no longer among the living, Um, you know, or when I see, um, you know, landscapers come in and alter and modify the environment. And all of a sudden the squirrel doesn't have a safe place anymore to hide or be. And, and I always feel, you know, sort of that it's unfortunate how little we think about yeah. You know, because we're beautifying it for our human, um, you know, Whatever if somebody decided, that's pretty. Yeah. That's
1: um, emotional awareness, right? Right. Yeah, awareness of the environment, aware of those who live in the environment, other than our own immediate needs. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, um, well, I am so grateful to have had you on. Thank you for the work that you do, not just the research, but the the emotional work that you're doing uh, in helping the community and the students and kids and everybody to have the opportunity to interact and connect with um, with these wonderful therapy assisting canines. And thanks.
1: let me throw some light your way. I I really appreciate you showcasing the work that we're doing. I really appreciated, Jennifer, the good, solid background uh, research you've done. You asked informed questions and you really fed me good questions that just aligned with my own sort of interest. So I appreciate that. And anybody who's a guest on your show is lucky to share this forum with you.
0: Thank you. Now tears are going to happen. So we have to end. So thank you for being on the show. I really, I appreciate that so much because I try very hard.
1: Yeah, it shows. Wonderful. Wonderful to, to talk to you today.
0: Well, I don't know about you, but I thought that was a great, great conversation. One thing that I hope you heard as you listened to our conversation is the focus on kindness, perspective, taking and compassion. Another, and this is very close to my heart, is how we have a responsibility to be attentive and attuned to the needs of all other animals, not just service animals. As Dr. Pinvet said, animals teach us to step into our emotions. They give us many gifts and perhaps in return, only need us to have respect for their wants, needs, desires, and autonomy. More on that in another podcast. That's the show. And don't forget, you can find the notes on my website, JenniferVerdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. There, you will also find links to Bark and the Center for Mindful Engagement, as well as social media links to keep up with Dr. Benfett, the BARC program, and more. If you're enjoying the show, subscribe and share it so others can enjoy it too. You can follow us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Wild Connect Pod. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Real Dr. Jen. Thanks for listening.